The negative reaction to certain aspects of the UFO phenomenon has always been an essay in the psychology of denial. In the anthropology of Western techno-shamanism, denial is not so much an attempt to demonstrate that a thing is true or untrue, but to render it invisible, that is, to de-propagandize its image in media time. From the very beginning, that is from Kenneth Arnold's UFO sighting on June 24th, 1947, denials of the existence of UFOs have always had a special quality. Such denials do not appear to come from the natural human rejection response essential for filtering out palpable nonsense. No, more like there's a lightning slam of some mental door and action so fast that the normal process of consciousness hardly detected. There appears to be no processing between perception and rejection, no separating out, as with other qualities of the good, the bad, or the indifferent parts. Then and now, most UFO skeptical denials are almost completely implicit, preconditioned, almost as if they were some quite automatic function of a bioelectric switch, shutting off certain planes of information within the brain. As with many believers, in few skeptics do we find considered intellectual rejection. Rather do we find quite genuine anger and resentment and bitterness, as if the phenomenon not only offends them intellectually, but also offends some deep, very private thing which they hold dear. Give a man like Colonel Watson an airplane, and he would see immediately the good, bad, and indifferent parts of this machine. Give him the very best UFO sightings, and he would not see any such distinct qualitative shadings. He would not separate it out, as would be expected, in the same manner. We humans are highly selective creatures. No purple robes on mountaintops, please. We're scientists. Of course, should any self-respecting alien know of this filter, the first thing he or she, or it or other, would provide for themselves would be the very best purple robes and mountaintops they could lay their scaly hands upon. The key to all invisibility lies here. Find the mental cutoff points and you are free to do as you please. Fifty years later, many skeptics on this level are switched off like a light bulb in similar fashion. For all the world, it is as if some paradigm-operated bioelectric relay contact has received a fast set of instructions, B-feature robot style. We shall meet many more examples of this strange, automated mental switching as we proceed in this book. The UFO phenomenon is about people and societies as much as it is about whatever it is in itself. Ghosties, my ghoulies, and my moth people. Welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Rory, and I am joined by the hilarious duo, Nick and Jay. That's libel. Actually, is it slander or libel? In print, it's libel. Spoken aloud, it's slander. And it's neither one of those things. They called you hilarious, you twit. On this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant.
So how are you guys doing? I'm doing okay. It's been a hell of a week, but I'm here. I'm alive. I think my pulse is there. That must mean I'm alive. Yeah, you're, you're, you're definitely alive. You're oh, alive. Good. We 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 had the shaman check. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. Who's oh, good. the shaman? You don't have to worry about it. <laughs> I'm worried now. Okay, if there's a dude <laughs> living in this house, I don't care if he's a shaman. He's paying rent. The shaman does not live in the house. The shaman does not live anywhere. The shaman comes when he's called. I'm just saying I catch him in my house. I'm going in with a baseball bat. Yeah, that's okay. Home intruder. Yeah, that's okay. He's 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 fine. It's it's fine. You can you can kill him. I don't care. No. I I I I no, I got nothing. I have no idea what to do with this. I don't this even know what we're talking about. Completely yeah. honest, like we have already <laughs> spun off into lunacy, and that, that's about how um, the this book is probably gonna. No, you know, not lunacy so much as just like. Frustration? I, yeah. Yeah, th- yeah. This book didn't make me stupid like Alien World Order did, um, <laughs> but it, it made me something. Well, Tired, it was, mostly? Yeah. You know, I mean, I was justifiably uh, frustrated with the content. And what I mean by that is the historical uh, narrative presented, because obviously there are things in it that are enraging, namely massive military incompetence. Mm-hmm. Fuck you, Colonel Watson. <laughs> uh, the uh, But then I also just kept getting frustrated by the book because it could have been I mean it was already a short book it could have been a lot shorter there was a ton of padding added to it of just 30 pages where the story doesn't get advanced at all it's just it's just and that happened repeatedly throughout the book like it was just uh, honest to God he could have fit this entire story in a much better book if it was just about 90 pages speaking of which what book are we doing today so we are doing flying saucers over the White House by Colin Bennett uh, and if that doesn't sound familiar to you, it also goes under the title An American Demonology. Uh, I don't know why that title was changed for the recent reprinting, uh, but that that is what historically the book was known as. Mm-hmm. My uh, the copy that you lent me, uh, Nick, still has uh, still has an American Demonology as yeah. the running head yeah, that's inside what, it. <laughs> that's what prompted me to go down a rabbit hole of looking up like the history of editions of this book because I was trying to figure out why the hell it said an American demonology at the top of every page. Didn't you say that this title was initially like obnoxiously long? Well, all right. So here, let me see that. Let me see that copy. <clears throat> okay. So yeah, just pass it over. I'm not going to throw it. Yeah, don't do Don't do the that. original title in its entirety is an American demonology. Flying saucers over the White House, the inside story of Captain of Captain Edward J. Ruppelt and his official U.S. Air Force investigation of UFOs. All of that was the title. And I guess the publisher decided they needed to trim it. So he cut off the first three words and called it good. Yeah, that seems about right. Really, I think what you should do is just call it an American demonology because it's a stronger title and then just cut out the flying saucers over the White House and just have. American Demonology, the inside story of Captain Edward J. Ruppelt, but ultimately we're splitting hairs now. Well, that and honestly, like flying saucers over the White House, that's the part that grabbed my attention. Yeah. Yeah. You but know? my problem is, is that the flying saucers over the White House was a third of the book. If that. Yeah. If that. It, if that. I don't think you hit it until you're about 70% of the way through the book. Yeah. yeah. And even, even then, it's only it, it's small like small sections. Well, and also, it, it tells the story. As it happened everywhere but Washington, D.C. So, like, you find out what all the surrounding areas reacted to, how all the surrounding areas reacted to it, but 
and we'll and we'll get into it. But like you're right, we hear about the incidents in Washington, and mostly about how the Air Force specifically reacted, Air Force and Project Blue Book reacted to it, rather than actually talking about the incidents themselves. Right. I mean, I'm, oh, I'm am, sure we'll get into it. Am I crazy, or does Colin Bennett low key want to want to fuck Ruppelt? Mm, I don't say I was, I, I'm not I, I didn't get any sexual vibes. I think he was trying really, really, really hard to make Ruppel into uh, a hero of Project Blue Book and the UFO phenomenon. And he just didn't succeed at bringing that across. I, yeah, I mean, Ruppelt kind of came across to me like a pretty competent middle manager. Yeah, I yeah, I think he was just a guy. Like, really, I mean, it seemed like he was a guy who was dedicated to his job and he might and he seemed like a pretty cool person. But in terms of like, if you're talking about heroes of ufology, I just I didn't get that impression from this no. book. No, me neither. Um, it, I kind of felt more like this is a guy who did the job for a little while, but ultimately other people who were involved in Blue Book had a larger impact on ufology. You know, obviously thinking about uh, J. Allen Hynek, thinking about Jacques Vallée. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, people that we've talked about on this show previous to this, um, never having talked about Ruppelt. Is that how you say his Rup- name? Is I, I, think it's, I think it's Ruppelt. Ruppelt. Okay. I wasn't a hundred percent. Yeah, I'm I'm not either, but I mean I f I'm basing that off of, of an interview I saw, not with him, with someone talking about him. Gotcha. And that's how they pronounced it. Ruppelt. All right. Works for me. You ready to get into it? Yeah. Yeah, let's uh let's walk down this road again. All right. Today's journey is not like your typical UFO story. Today, we journey through the story of Edward Ruppelt, the Air Force pilot and then head of the notorious Project Blue Book. His story is different than others that we have read here on Nectivigant because he was a pilot, an aircraft specialist, and a hard-minded skeptic in his own right. The story begins talking about Ruppelt's time in World War II and how he was merely a hairline fracture away from being the pilot to drop one of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima or Nagasaki. It goes on in painful detail about all the different aircraft of the time, from the B-series bombers to the Russian MiG-15. Before getting himself involved in the world of UFOs, he studied these foreign aircraft, including that MiG-15, which some say to this day is one of the best aircrafts ever made, and it's Soviet. After his time as an active duty pilot, he joined a group called ATIC which is the Air Technical Intelligent Command, which is within the United States Air Force. As I said previously, his first task in ATIC was to research the MiG-15, where he was more of an organizer rather than like an actual analyst. During his time at ATIC, he learned that there was a solo man department called Project Grudge. This was the unit that went over all the UFO sightings over the U.S. and from the Air Force itself and some from overseas, depending on where they got reported from. Most of what happened in Project Grudge seemed very hush-hush and naturally waited to the side of a skeptic. The head of ATIC at the time, Colonel and later Brigadier General Harold Watson, was 100% anti-saucer, reading from the book, quote, Nothing better shows Watson's attitude to UFOs than international news service reporter Bob Considine's interview with him in November 1950. Watson claimed, At the end of nearly every report tracked down stands a crackpot, a religious crank, a publicity or a malicious practical joker. Wrong. 
Needless to say, when it comes to UFOs, Watson was a hard man to get to think outside the box. It was in 1950 that Ruppel first heard the murmurings of UFOs. Not that he hadn't heard of them before. He's an Air Force man, so of course he had heard of the sightings that were plastered all over the news and published in books by this time. It was around this time that there was a UFO sighting by the Air Force and in the state of Iowa. Quote, within minutes after seeing strange bluish-white lights, the crew found themselves almost on a dead-ahead collision course with an object they described as looking like a wingless fuselage of a B-29. You mean a cigar or a Tic Tac? Yeah. Or not a plane? (laughs) Yeah, just not a plane? How about that? Watson! The object flashed by their right wing, and a very short while later it appeared again, this time flying in a steady formation with them, end quote. The sighting was then reported by a full colonel from military intelligence. According to Ruppo, the official reaction to the report was, quote, great big deep belly laugh. Beginning what I imagine was a string of long-time confusion from Ruppelt when he was under the impression that the United States Air Force was, quote, seriously investigating all UFO reports, thus leading to the rabbit hole that would shape much of his future. He even commented on the low maturity level of those that were investigating the sightings. He said, quote, I certainly didn't class myself as an intelligence expert, but It didn't take an expert to see that a B-36, even one piloted by an experienced idiot, could not do what that UFO had done. Buzz a DC-3 that was in an airport traffic pattern, end quote. Through his confusion over the Iowa sighting, he continued to poke around asking other members of ATIC about it and getting a less than satisfactory reply. Quote, one of these days, one of these pilots will kill themselves. The crazy people on the ground will be locked up and there won't be any more flying saucer reports. Still waiting. Ruppelt, not satisfied, went on to say, quote, The one thing that stood out to me, being unindoctrined in the ways of UFO lore, was the schizophrenic approach so many people at ATIC took. On the surface, they sided with the belly laughers on any saucer issue. But if you were alone with them and started to ridicule the subject, they defended it. Or at least, they took an active interest. I learned this one day after I had been at ATIC for about a month. End quote. Myself, being from the future, it is unfortunate that this was the standard-style reply from someone within the organization that is responsible for looking into these sightings as they were completely wrong and sightings have continued to this very day. So with that, let's go into our first discussion question. Cool. So we are still very early on into this book at this point, and this is really the first sighting that Ruppel had dealt with. And he wasn't even assigned to the task force. He was just kind of looking into it on his own. He was he was hearing about it from the water cooler. Right. Do you think that it was the lack of a working response to the questions that he did have that ended up driving him further down the rabbit hole? Or do you think that it was, I don't know, something else? Um, I mean, yeah, I, I think that that was... Uh that, that was definitely my read on it was that the only reason that we even really remember Edward Ruppelt's name is because he got annoyed about the non-answers he was getting. And because he raised enough of a stink, eventually they just put him in charge. And, and that that's I mean, which I guess that is the most, uh, you know, I get the, the author does a lot uh, to try to paint Ruppelt as a hero figure. Um, and that to me was 
like the most heroic part was there at the front because once he gets into the Myers, the bureaucracy later, it just kind of seems like he I mean, it's not that he gave up. It's that he never had a chance of really doing anything anyway. Yeah, no, that's um, that's, that's true. So like this is the period where I liked Rebolt the best was when it was when he was just standing on the outside of this grand mystery and just starting to poke his way in because I mean, at least everyone here, we, we've all been there before that first moment of of recognizing that the world might not be as simple as you thought it was, mm-hmm. that there might be a lot weirder stuff going on out there. Um, and it takes it does take a lot of courage to look at that and not turn away from it, True. which he didn't. And and I, I, I did see that. I don't I didn't really get a, a feeling of him of being an obsessed, obsessed person, although there was a lot of parallels the author drew between him and Ahab. Yeah. Yeah. Which I mean, obviously, I, I love Moby Dick. So that that, that definitely uh, uh, perked my interest. I have a quote here. Like most American heroes, he has something of Melville's Captain Ahab in him. Like Ahab, Ruppelt knows that no man was ever built for this level of endeavor. But nevertheless, there is something in him that tries again and again to capture the white whale of the UFO. I just, like, I just like the quote. I wrote it down. Yeah, no, it was, I mean, it is a good quote. I'm I'm not sure that I agree with the comparison to Ahab. No, I know. I don't think uh, Ruppelt was um, a suicidal psychopath uh, yeah. so obsessed with chasing the white whale that he was going to surrender every piece of his life, including, you know, his life. Um, and, and that's largely because, as we saw, that didn't happen. He he did give up functionally at one point. Yeah. Don't they all? Yeah. Basically, I mean, mean, if they don't, then I mean, depending on what conspiracy theories you believe, if they don't, then they get suicided. Yeah. Yeah. They commit suicide with two bullets to the back of the head. I I do think the lack of the competent response was a facet of why uh, Ruppelt uh, began doing this. I think more precisely, I think he was just being driven crazy by like that cognitive dissonance that uh bennett was explaining of like yeah when we're all out in public and we're all hanging out in a big group ufos are a thing to laugh at ufos are a thing to mock they're basically fairy tales made up by attention-seeking crazies but the minute you're alone with these people they're like do not speak ill of the saucers they can hear (laughs) (laughs) and i think i think that's what made rumpelt start going okay what the fuck (laughs) because okay so you believe in it you do believe in it, but we can't officially believe in it. We have to throw the people who believe in it into the into the crazy man corner and put the dunce cap on them. Why? If you believe in it. This is so weird. Why? It it just reminds me of the way Victorian people handled sex of it's like, no, no one has sex except we do the minute no one else is in the room. That's all we do. <laughs> yeah, Victorians were dirty. Mm-hmm. They they were, had- I mean, that's where a, a lot of kinks were invented during that period. They were very exploratory. There's yeah. one called figging where you uh, you take a root of ginger and you carve it into a plug and you shove it into someone's ass in order to hurt them. Oh, Why? my God. <laughs> I know. Right? That's the, one of the worst things that's been said out loud on this show. Why, why do you know that? <laughs> Obviously, Jay likes plugging. No, I don't. <laughs> I think it's disgusting. And I think it's the reason humans should be blown up. I... That that that's the reason <laughs> you're going to go with shove produce up our ass. That's why we need to be blown up. Well, I feel like, I feel like we've done worse. I feel like we at this table have done worse. Yeah, like I'm sorry. Like, well, you just look on the scale of humanity. Like what? Genghis Khan. 
Carrot in your bum. Which one's worse? It's like Stalin? <laughs> carrot in your bum. It's not a carrot. It's a ginger. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Produce. A root. It produce is produce. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say that because there's a big difference between having a carrot up your bum and having like a sack of potatoes in there. Uh, yeah, that's true. Um, like a whole sack. Yeah, whole not sack. Not just a single potato. Well, and not taken out of the sack either. Naturally. I, I, sack included. <laughs> returning to the question at hand, I'm so sorry, listeners, that I did this to us. No, you're not. Um, I am. No, you're not. I am. This is what's going to get me Twitter canceled. Anyway. You don't, never mind. I know I don't matter. have enough people on Twitter and you don't, you me. Know, you don't even use your Twitter. I don't. Why would I do that? It scares me. I don't understand it. Um, shit. Returning to the question. Um, I think, uh, so yeah, I think it was the, I think it was the cognitive dissonance he was seeing that was starting to drive him crazy because it, that makes it hard for you to get a read on what the actual situation is. If people are saying one thing in public and a completely different thing in private. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think that I think that as a as a man concerned with his duty, he, he was bothered by the fact that nobody was doing their fucking jobs. It's like, I don't care if you think it's stupid. Can't you just do your job? You mm-hmm. won't. OK, I guess I'm doing your job. And I, I think he would have fallen down this rabbit hole basically anyway, if he'd ended up being put in charge of looking into some of these reports, just because I think he would have been so determined to make up for the failings of his fellow officers that he was just like, I guess I believe in UFOs now because someone has to. Well, I think I think ultimately, I think he did come around to believe not necessarily that they were aliens, uh, but that the UFO sightings were something that needed to be looked into because that was my like my interpretation was that he was uh, he was upset that nobody was taking this seriously, especially on the eve of World War Two or on the. Uh, it was in the aftermath of World That's, War Two. I was trying to think of yeah, a, I was and, trying to think of a word. And the Cold War was starting to brew, uh, brew, and Korea was like right on the horizon. Yeah, and he was a World War Two pilot, so he saw this as a much bigger deal and something that should be taken seriously. And I, I mean, ultimately, I agree. When you uh, are part of the Air Force Intelligence Service, you should be. Uh, taking the fact that there are sightings of unknown objects in your space pretty seriously. Yeah. And his interpretation was that they weren't. I mean, it didn't seem like they were. Right. No, and I, I agree. It, it doesn't seem like they were. And I mean, to this day, they it really feels like they they I mean, don't. But I, they like they're getting better. I, I mean, I also think that probably the Air Force has for a long time behind closed doors, but we can talk that's going kind of varying it veering into the realm of conspiracy theory that we don't have anything to substantiate mm-hmm. um i will say this i think that one thing that also might have driven rappelt is uh, uh rappelt seemed like he i mean the author definitely made it seem like rappelt was very much interested in trying to find an answer 
for the UFO phenomenon. What I mean mm. by that is I think one of the big failings he had is he was always on the lookout for a single reason, you know, the, the answer, the, the objective truth at the core of things. And it kind of a whole theme throughout this book was that Ruppelt was the sort of simple man looking for these simple answers in an increasingly complex world that no longer had simple answers. Mm. Uh, you had all these competing agendas between politicians, the military industrial complex, which was just starting to get going then, the branches of the military. Um, and then you also had <laughs> you also had the fact that we, we were now entering into kind of the realm of science where things were moving beyond the garage, beyond the lone inventor sitting there figuring something out. You had government sponsored teams like the Manhattan Project doing things that at the time people thought were impossible. So I, I feel like one of the big themes I got through this book was that Ruppelt was a man living through kind of the dying days of his era before this new age of high conspiracy and military industrial complex and really, I guess, industrial corporate power. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, once that before that became settled. Yeah. Um, th- this this time period does seem to really feel like a turning point. Like, I think I'm jumping ahead a bit, but that um, the section of the book entitled The Tribal Meat, when they had all of those uh, when they had all of those different colonels and generals and civilian consultants brought back to brought together to talk about the UFO phenomenon. And some of them were furious and disgusted that these reports had been kept from them and essentially had been thrown in the trash. And they're sitting there going, what do you mean you were burning classified American intelligence? And the other half of them were going, yeah, because it's stupid and not important and we didn't think we should bother you with it. And it's like that felt so significant to me, like that felt like that moment in time was the was the fork in the road and the the direction that they went down is just what defined how the phenomenon was treated by the federal government particularly the military for the next half a century yeah no i mean i I, and that's the thing about this book is that when i was thinking about this book i realized this should not have been focused on Ruppelt. And what I mean by that is Ruppelt is an is an interesting guy, but he's interesting in a way that I'd read a 30 page article about him. Uh, you didn't need a book about him, but a book about this era and how the events of this era shaped kind of the modern uh, relationship between the military and UFOs, at least modern till around 2017 when some things changed uh, it. I think that that I think if that had been the focus of the book, I feel like it would have been a lot uh, more concise and I feel like it probably would have been stronger for it. But that that, again, is just armchair, you know, armchair skeptic or not skeptic, uh, arch armchair critique, armchair author. Yeah, I I, I didn't want to say that because, I mean, I am writing. It's just I'm doing it from an armchair. (laughs) I mean, it's more like an office chair, but yeah, it has arms. Fair enough. Like. Uh, honestly, uh, just just to preface, the, the thing that I found the most facet, like other than the tribal meat, the, the section, the thing that I found the most fascinating about this book was the and it just it just hadn't occurred to me before because I just hadn't thought about it in the in those terms. But the fact that he kind of casually mentions at one point, it's like and of course, all of the officers who were enlisted and out fighting on the front lines of World War Two were the men in offices making decisions during Vietnam. And it's like, OK, actually, when you put it like that, that explains a lot about what went wrong in Vietnam. Yeah. True. 
Ready to move on? I think so. I mean, never. I'm terrified of change, but go on. This next section's pretty short before we get into our next discussion question, so I think think you'll be all right. Okay, good. UFO sightings and the want or need to investigate them started to ramp up, even gathering the attention of a Life magazine journalist, Bob Gina. Gina was prying into all the things that ATIC didn't want him to pry into, going to the Pentagon and the Office of Public Information inquiring into the status of Project Grudge. James Rogers, the solo man responsible for Project Grudge, gave Gina an interview and really left him wanting. Gina was suspicious of Rogers' competence, likely due to the disorganization of the whole project, but maybe more so in Roger's inability to answer any questions without having to first pour over all the files and or responding with a generic response of, I'm sorry, that's classified. Within two months of that meeting, Project Grudge was taken over by uh, Lieutenant W. Cummings, and after being with ATIC for nine months at this time, Ruppelt was given part-time duties to help Cummings, who, like Rogers, was a single-man team otherwise. At this time, the primary responsibility of Cummings and Project Grudge was to sift through the reports of UFO sightings and separate the, quote, good from the, quote, bad sightings. Good being those from pilots and radar and the bad being from, well, anyone talking about abductions or physical alien beings. And this was pretty standard for the time. Maybe the world wasn't or isn't ready for the, quote, scientific community to start investigating these as if there is an actual other life here on Earth. Could they be drones or other types of controlled craft? Sure. But never with an actual occupant and never abductions. And this will lead us to our second discussion question. What do you think about all this? This was likely at the height of when sightings were coming in, uh, you know, because it's right around 1950. And they were essentially ignoring any sighting that wasn't by the military itself or some other source that they deemed good. While there was likely a lot of fake sightings or even, you know, crazy people, they were passing up on anything that had to do with aliens. Do you think this was a missed opportunity or was it smart for them to almost take it this slow? I think this was a giant missed opportunity. Like I'm actually really frustrated thinking about this. And part of me is going exactly how far behind are we? Because we didn't start taking this seriously in the late 40s and early 50s. Like we clearly had a chance to. And it's kind of like. And I'm just I'm just sitting here wondering if it's like how many how many encounters were just burned in file cabinets in mass because the Air Force said that report came from a civilian. So clearly it's garbage when no, that's not how that works. And it was it was so baffling to me to read the utter the utter dismissal of anything that didn't come from an enlisted officer and and so yeah i think it i think it's a giant missed opportunity and i can absolutely appreciate uh, approaching a new scientific concept or a new field of study with a certain amount of caution and care but this was not caution this was not 
care. They didn't have they didn't have a goddamn filing system. All of their shit was just getting thrown into random piles or lost or blatantly destroyed. And it it it, it makes me it makes me want to rip my hair out, especially because part of the reason that it's so hard to get modern people to take any of this shit seriously is because of the way the military is portrayed in American culture, people are very rapid will very rapidly dismiss it on the basis of if this was a thing, the military would be doing something about it. And it's like they chose not to. Well, that and uh, be without the military giving any kind of inclination that this is a real deal. Right. The American public sits there and goes, yeah, fuck it. Like, I don't care. It can't, it's not a problem. You know, I, I see giant orbs in the sky, but that doesn't mean it's an alien or it doesn't mean it's anything important because if it was, they expect there to be some level of transparency there that's never there. Yeah. Why, why would it be there? Um, and, and it's also just the fact of it's like, yeah, and if there was anything that involved abduction, they just threw it out immediately as, as garbage. And that, that, that makes, that makes me so angry. Yeah, that that's the part that pissed me off the most too. And the author Colin Bennett even brought up uh, one of the intre- one of the points in the book that I found was really interesting was if you think about it, okay, if I'm an alien race and I figure out that the powers that be on this planet, the military force that is most likely to resist me of anyone on this planet, are ignoring any stories where we are seen, where the aliens are seen, or you know, the alien comes down in purple robes on a mountaintop and gives some advice to a would be prophet, like. That what you've done by ignoring those stories is if there is something out there that's actually doing these things, you've given it a free pass to keep doing it because it knows that you're going to ignore it. It, it, Honestly, Nick, it it reminds me of that that grim conversation you and I had several weeks ago. Uh, You know, we were talking about the satanic panic and the fact that that and the fact that once that got debunked, it had the unfortunate side effect of now there are pedophiles out there who realize that if they dress up in a red robe and they chant weirdly before they do the horrible thing that they do, nobody ever believes they're victims because that doesn't happen. Right. And and that's the thing is I think the absurd is I mean, we've talked about this with Passport to Begonia, a couple other books we've read. The absurd, I think, is a much more powerful smokescreen than people understand. Um, and I, I think obviously, yes, I do. Uh, back to the question. I do think that the Air Force missed a huge opportunity. I think I, I'm more interested. Obviously, that's true, but I'm more interested in uh, why thinking about it. I was interested in this view of the early Air Force. And what I mean by that is when this event was happening, it was Air Force is what, five, six years old, six years old. Mm-hmm. And so. You take an entity that large, that much funding and that fresh. I mean, they're looking to, you know, make their name in the country. They need to get the people of the United States to trust that the Air Force has their back, that they are just as respectable as the Navy and the Army that have been been operating for hundreds of years or over 100 years. Yep. Um, I, I just saw their entire reaction being. Well, this is something that we don't know how to deal with, so we don't want to deal with it. So we're going to send it over to this guy over here, and uh, he's going to make sure we never have to deal with it. Especially because if you think about it, if they're only you know claiming that those what uh, that uh, sightings from military personnel are the only valid ones, 
Well, then that's quite easy because those stories never necessarily have to leave the military sphere. No, they're automatically classified. Whereas if you debunk everything that anyone outside the military sees or, quote, debunk it, uh, you leave it. It's all too tidy. It ties it up nicely with a bow. You can squash the stories that are good and you can disregard the stories that are bad. And actually, there was another quote that I really liked from uh, this book. This is from the same section that Rory was reading earlier. Uh, It's an amazing feature of the Western mind that those who have had a UFO experience of any kind are judged to be the least worthy of analyzing that experience. The courts of proper debate rule out any odd, highly individualized, comic or ludicrous or absurd elements. Here we see the most tragic comic emblem of mankind's philosophy. Get rid of the nutcases and there will be revealed shining truth. Only the better educated bourgeoisie can and will measure reality and say daylight discs. Yes, controlled craft possible, but occupants. No, at least not yet. Only the clever and sensible and those of social merit are worthy of meeting the gods. Um, I, I, I think that. I mean, well, that is nice and poetic. And I think it does also maybe speak to there might have been just straight up human psychological factors at play here beyond nefarious cover ups and conspiracies. And I think, quite honestly, probably early on when the military was first really trying to grapple with this, I think that that is that that explains many more of their actions to me than the conspiracy angle does. Yeah, um, that that makes total sense. And. I will. I will. My only other thing to add is like, well, I would have loved to see the Air Force go like, all right, we're going to throw all of our shit at that until we figure out what it is. I don't trust them to do a good job. Well, I mean, I feel like they would have started a war with uh, with Lanulos. I feel like they would have uh, invoked the wrath of the Wolfen ones at like three different times in this in this book. Like our pilots try to shoot at these things. So, yeah, that's exactly what would happen. I I think the biggest missed opportunity by the Air Force at this time, because I agree that it was a missed opportunity. It was kind of a softball question. Yeah. Um, but not dealing with the abduction cases specifically bothers me the most. And the reason why is you are a new uh, a new you, you know division of the military. Mm-hmm whose task is to, to uh, protect the United States. And the people that you're avoiding are the people. Yeah, the people that you're supposed to protect and serve. Right. Yeah. And they were just like, nah, you're just a crackpot. And it's like, how do you know that? You, you don't because, because you, you saw, don't talk to them. Because they saw an alien and aliens aren't real because I can't handle it. Well, maybe you should grow the fuck up. No, I don't want to. I'm going to go up and shit my pants and eat paste food. Well, have fun with that. You're a general in the United States Air Force. Congratulations. I get, the best, I get the best baby food. Enjoy your lunch break, Colonel Watson, you piece of shit. I, I also really got to point out one thing. I hated how much I hated Colonel Watson because, you know, Watson's my cat's name. Yeah. <laughs> I, was like, I was just sitting there the whole time imagining my cat in the uniform <laughs> making those decisions. Watson would have handled this whole situation so much better. Yeah, he would. He would bat the UFOs out of the air. He know cats know what to do about flying things that shouldn't be there. Yeah, I, I think I think uh, your your Watson, Dr. Watson, would have done uh, a hundred times better than the uh, United United States Air Force did at this time. Like by doing nothing. Yeah. By just being a cat in the office. Uh, yeah. D- do you know what I would have would find a fat like t- if I could have like a machine to look into other t- 
timelines. I want to see the timeline where they put like the Naval Air Division or the Marine Corps Air Division in charge of this instead. And it might have it likely would have gone almost exactly the same way. But what if it didn't? I think the only way that this would have been better at at uh, at this time specifically uh, is the Navy, then the Navy uh, pilots. Yeah. I mean, one well, at that stage, the Navy, the Navy, the Navy's Air Force had more experience in this realm than the Air Force did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. and they had more experience flying than the Air Force did. Yeah. Uh, and after World War II, I mean, it's, it seemed like most of the best pilots were still in the Navy. Mm-hmm. They, they did, didn't leave. I mean, which that is why... That which, didn't really change until, like, what, the 80s? Well, they even point out in the book the fact that the, when the Air Force first came around, the Marines refused to use them. They said, no, we want to keep our naval air support and not use the Air Force because we don't trust them. Yeah. yeah. Well, and the Navy and the Marines have always had, like, a, a bit of a bond. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, yeah it... I just, I just, it's, it's like, like a, they're part of the same division yeah. of the U.S. military. <laughs> and, and, and I will admit, I'm largely going off of just like the, and this might not be true anymore, but like when my, when my uncles were still in the Navy, um, the Navy was still very su- superstitious, much like the less like old world sailors were. And so I'm just wondering, like, like you said, Rory, if the Navy would have maybe have just been like, yeah, the aliens. Yeah, we know about that. We see that shit all the time. The only way we'd know is if we got our hands on some classified documents from the Navy, which is never going to happen. Hey, if you're a Navy, uh, if you're a Navy truther living in, uh, in living abroad where the arm of the U.S. law possibly can't reach you. If you're, uh, in, the, if you're in the military, the U.S. law applies. Especially, risk your life and your livelihood by telling us if the Navy yeah, not, believes not, not the world. Votes. Tell us specifically so we could sit on it and do nothing with it. Email um, us at not to forget podcast. What are we going to do? Talk about it on the show? Yeah, that's it. That's what we would do. Well, maybe you will. I'm not getting suicided. <laughs> well, they can't suicide me harder than I'd suicide myself. That is the darkest thing said on this show. I take back what I said earlier. <laughs> just why I'm just imagining two like, you know, covert government assassins, but they pick the front door, they come in, and they just find you like in the bedroom standing on a milk crate with a noose around your neck, and you just kick the crate out and choke to death while flipping them off with both hands. Like, you can't kill me if I'm dead. That's right. <laughs> That's fucking right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they keep shooting me, and I just keep getting up, and they're like, What are you? <laughs> oh. I've eaten so many zebra cakes and drunk so much Pepsi. I'm artificial from the inside out. It's like fucking Skyrim rules. You just don't <laughs> die if you keep eating cheese. I know. <laughs> In April of 1950, now most of ATIC being UFO conscious, a rocket was launched in New Mexico. As it was falling back to the Earth from the stratosphere, some of the camera crews that were recording the rocket picked up an object streaking across the sky. Trying to get more evidence of said object, one of the crew members alerted the rest of the base to try and get a picture. Unfortunately, only one camera had film, and they were only able to get an indistinct blur which is still something. A year after the incident, Ruppelt was trying to get in touch with the data reduction group from or 
trying to get in touch with the data reduction group from that military base in White Sands, New Mexico. Naturally, the files were in chaos, almost an expectation to Ruppel at this time. Ruppel was able to talk to a major from that base who was able to give him a report that he had gathered from somebody else that said, essentially, quote, the major said that by putting a correction factor in the data gathered by the two cameras, they were able to arrive at a rough estimate of speed, altitude, and size. The UFO was higher than 40,000 feet, traveling over 2,000 miles per hour, and it was over 300 feet in diameter. Damn. Unfortunately, again, the photos were lost. Lost. This became a common theme with UFO reports, lost evidence that is, photographs, drawing, reports themselves, cameras and video film, even human beings all seem to go missing. Turns out this was happening at a very high level too. Watson, formerly of Project Grudge, of course, destroyed evidence. But specifically, he destroyed a wire recording of Major General Cable having a full conversation about a specific UFO incident. That recording, Watson destroyed. And at the time, wasn't even working at ATIC. Which is illegal. Oh, super illegal. Super duper illegal. Super, super, yeah. I think he technically committed treason. I don't think they would get him treason for that because I think they would just give him... uh, uh, destroying government property. Okay. I wish it was treason what he did. Yeah, treason, he would have had to do it with a malicious intent to uh, betray the United States government, which I don't think would have, I don't think that would be, that was his intention. Watson is working for the Wolfen Ones, confirmed. <laughs> As it turns out, to some in the Air Force and maybe in the scientific community looking into UFOs and aliens, well, It leaves a sour taste in their mouths. They don't want to deal with it, and for that, they will bury and destroy whatever it takes to make it invisible. Bennett, the author whose name I hadn't mentioned until this point, contemplates about how the UFO researchers of now need to move away from this old way of thinking, that documenting things like UFO settings was only part of the battle. But really, we need UFO research to advance alongside things like mathematics and psychology. He thinks that we need to, essentially, open up our mind to a more liminal way of thinking. Maybe here, fact and fiction are more intertwined. He uses examples such as Roger Penrose's Impossible Triangle and a drawing by M.C. Escher to show how the brain can interpret things in multiple ways and compares this to UFOs. He speculates that maybe the Western mindset just isn't ready for the kind of thinking that might be required for UFOs because of their more liminal nature. Now, on to our third discussion question. Now, this, specifically that last little bit that I read, talking about like the different ways of interpreting uh, the information, like our brain's different way of interpreting information and thinking about that in terms of UFOs. This is something that we've actually talked about quite a bit in different books on the show. So... What's your take on him kind of just splashing it in here? Because he, d- he does dabble with it a little bit throughout the book. But honestly, I think in this section of the book specifically is where he kind of dives in the most into the idea of thinking about it, um, I guess, in a more in a more liminal way. So what's, what's your take on it here? Do you agree with Bennett? I, I mean, 
I, I do agree with Bennett on this point in that I, I mean, not to say that that's for sure what's happening here, but I think it's a possibility that needs to be entertained. I, I'm not sure. And this is kind of one of my struggles with this book is that I'm not sure how that idea really relates to the story of Ruppelt, because I mean, the story of Ruppelt largely even the author admitted like he grappled with the weirder uh, explanations. He couldn't really rectify them. He was still he even if you don't want to say he's a skeptic, he definitely is of the nuts and bolts opinion. He was he was kept trying to look at these things as crafts. And I mean, as we know from a lot of the research we've done on the show, the the behavior of these UFOs doesn't make a whole lot of sense or the behaviors of the occupants. And I do think there is probably something to be said for uh, how our perception and our cultural background shapes the experience of reality we receive. And what I mean by that is it's quite possible. Maybe if you had somebody who was raised in a more uh, Eastern ph- philosophical mindset, standing right next to someone raised in a Western uh, a Western philosophical mindset, and you present them with a UFO, I would be curious to see if they even see the same object. Uh, and I think that what we might be dealing with here, with not with not just UFOs, but the phenomenon in general, meaning it, it Kiel's phenomenon, meaning all phenomenon is that we are seeing kind of think of it like a shadow on a wall. It is a shadow cast by something in that ultra reality, whatever that larger world is. And because it doesn't really adhere to our understanding of reality, our brain fills in the gaps. It makes it into something that we can, we can at least somewhat conceptualize. Um, and I, I think that that idea is probably just a little too ephemeral for people who their entire life is about uh, what what do our what can our planes do? What can the enemy planes do? We are killing flesh and blood people. You know, I, I feel like they a lot in order to be at war, you would have to have a, almost a very survivalist materialist mindset because you don't have time to you know be thinking about about ghosties and ghoulies when you have bullets flying at you you have to deal with the very physical dangers around you and i feel like probably if if i fought a war it'd be hard to look past that past the constant assessment of my surroundings of of the threats that i know exist that would kind of become to dominate my anxiety but isn't that kind of part of the nature of being in a war zone is, yeah, you know that your enemy is physical, right? But you have to be aware Mm -hmm. all the time. You have to know, or you have to be willing to assess everything that's happening, including things that you don't know. Mind you, we didn't have, we, the United States, didn't have as much experience with this kind of fighting at this point, but look at Vietnam, Right. right? We didn't know a lot of how the Vietnamese fought. The guerrilla warfare was very new to us at the time. Even though we did it in the American Revolution. It was very different. I know it was. It was very different. But we also learned that tactic from indigenous Americans. It was not something that was native to our own culture. Mm-hmm. True. I just think that, like, I guess I think that, y- y- you know, you yes, it's, it's hard to ac- accept the unknown. Um especially if you're from a more nuts and bolts world. But I also think that if you are a military person, it should be 
within the scope of your training to accept that you won't know everything and therefore like opening your mind to this greater, I, you know, the greater phenomenon because of it. Uh, and I, I don't disagree. Um, I, I, I also think probably a part of it, I mean, this is just to add on from, uh, to my statement earlier, I think also probably a part of it was coming off of World War II, there was this feeling of uh, perfect American military dominance. Oh, yeah. And that, and again, I come back to they didn't they couldn't deal with the fact that there was something that not just challenged them when they were already feeling like they were the kings of the earth. There was something that would blow them out of the water. There was mm-hmm. something they couldn't even conceive of its capabilities. Yeah. I, I think that all right, more so than the unreal, quote unquote, unreality of UFOs or aliens. I think that is the ideological uh, line they couldn't cross. Yeah, no, I agree wholeheartedly with that. I think that the fact that they were, it, it was almost their pride getting in the way because they, um, you know, they, like you said, they were the military might of the world. We had just shown how much better we are at blowing people up than everybody else. So for something to come in and just fucking blow us out of the water, they couldn't accept that. Yeah. I, my, my first thought on this is while it was interesting to see Bennett's particular way of trying to explain the inherently immaterial nature of the phenomenon. Um, I, I, I genuinely don't feel like this book was the place to do it. If this book wanted to focus on the evolution of the America, if this book wanted to focus on the American evolution of its military industrial complex as it pertains to the phenomenon or UAPs or whatever the hell you want to call them in this particular instance, please focus on that and don't try to get into this much more high level, more philosophical nature of the research. And if you are going to do it, I personally... I personally think that it might have been more effective if he had leaned more on referencing other writers who have done that, um, who have devoted much more of their careers to doing that, because that just coming from an academic perspective, that's just what you do. If you feel the need to go into this particular facet as an aside while you're trying to make your point, you should be relying on somebody who's an expert in that part of the phenomenon, not try to put your own necess- not necessarily put your own interpretation on it because it's just going to it's going to muddy the waters and sometimes it's going to come across like you don't know what you're talking about and he, and he did do that a little bit but not until later on in the book well, and yeah. also like I said I think my big and this is just an issue with uh, I guess the crafting of the book is that I didn't that section particular but also there were several other sections where I got to the end of reading them and I just realized what the heck did that have to do with Ruppelt it didn't yeah. it, 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 it was it wasn't even just that. Yeah, that happened it, all the time. It wasn't that like it gave extra context around the situation. It was talking about an aspect of the phenomenon that as far as we were presented, Ruppelt never even considered. Yeah. It was never a part of his experience. And the thing that frustrated me there is the author has also written uh, two biographies of people where that is part of the experience. Uh, at George. 
George Adamski and Charles Fort. Uh, and both of them, great. I guarantee if we pick, when we pick up those books eventually, there will be plenty of opportunities in there to spin off about the more theoretical side mm-hmm. of things or the more non-physical ideas around the phenomenon. Yeah, um, this was a very nuts and bolts book. And he and I it was a nuts and bolts book that was really a biography of Ruppelt that he continuously put in his own ideas into his yeah. own ideology. Although, like I said, I think this was half a biography of Ruppelt, half a biography of 1950s America, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I completely see what you mean. Um, and yes, I do think that Western modern Western society um struggles a lot with the idea of liminality just because um culturally our society does not like things that are more than one thing at once we enjoy when things are put into very neat very solid categories like honestly discovering dna fucked us up so much we're just like oh so you're telling me that i can just pull a little blood out of something and i can know everything about it and know exactly where in the whole web of life i can put it and can never budge from that spot <gasps> hyenas are more closely related related to dogs than cats there is no god <laughs> i just i uh, so yes i do agree with him that the liminal nature of ufo's has posed a very particular challenge to americans I don't care what a British man thinks about that. And I would prefer that he fuck off with all that nonsense because I don't think he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, but I see your point. <laughs> it just, I don't know. It just it just inherit. I, 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 <laughs> Jay always takes it to the extremes. I am. Come on, it's, we know that by it's now. It's for comedic effect. I retract earlier statement. You're an, be an anth- fine anthropologist. Analyze Americans all you want. We're very fun. I mean, um, arguably, yeah. you could only, uh, arguably, there's a lot of value in getting uh, analyses both from within and without the tribe. Also, yeah. not to be that person, but don't you analyze other people all the time just from a religious perspective? I do. That's why I'm retracting my statement because I realized <laughs> I was being a giant hypocrite on a recording. And unlike Colonel Watson, I don't like being a hypocrite where other people can see me doing that. And like like the good scholar you are, you own you own it. Of course. Yes. So so I, I do agree with his base analysis that Americans struggle to think in liminal shades of gray terms and that that has probably affected how we deal with the phenomenon at every level of our society. This book was not the place to do it. And uh, yeah, I also got to the end of the next section and I went, neat. What am I reading? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to lie to you guys. Um, I actually read that section three times because I didn't understand what I was reading. It's not that I didn't understand the concept. I understood the concept just fine. Mm -hmm. I was just trying to find the threads that were connecting. And it turns out, there weren't yeah, any. They, they yeah. really weren't. It, it had no... The, the 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 only thing I could think of that that section did for the book was it just it drove home a point that he had already made better elsewhere, being that one of the big things getting in the way of uh, finding any kind of truth early on regarding the phenomenon was the ontological framework of the Western mind. Uh, yeah. and, and, and I guess that that's where he was trying to go with it. But the problem is... 
is he had already said a dozen different ways that similar things to that idea that he had already done better. He already said those things uh, more succinctly and also just a lot more understandably, a lot more concisely. But he needed uh, a point of reference for repeatedly later on in the book, which he then references those two drawings repeatedly. Yeah, the uh, the Penrose Triangle and MC Escher, which I get it. I get what he's trying to get at there and that the, the, it's a good represent metaphor for the impossibility of these objects. Right. Um, in that, you know, it's, it's there. It's a physical object. You're seeing it. But what you're seeing cannot be real. Right. Uh, and I, I get that. I I just I I didn't think he he needed uh, 10, 10, 15 pages of support for that. It was an entire chapter. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, which is honestly, that's my biggest thing is like, cause there are, there are points in this book that are beautifully written. Oh yeah. There are points in this book where he gets his points across very well and he paints a great picture, but then he is, I mean, and this is coming from an overwriter to an overwriter. Yeah. He's getting in his own way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my favorite author in the world is an overwriter. Yeah. So, uh, like, and yeah, I so, didn't, I didn't need to know what that sandwich tasted like, Mr. King. <laughs> yes, you did. Yeah, but, and yet we'll, we'll talk about it forever. Anyway, let's, uh, let's, let's keep going. Next section is, uh, the longest that I have to get through. Okay. Um, I'll unbuckle my pants now. Yeah. But in my opinion, it's also the most entertaining. So buckle in. Please put your pants back on. No. Or don't. I don't really care. Aw, I'm outvoted. Rubble tried, while in ATIC, fighting against the, quote, syndicate. He was working hard to get respect for those that were researching UFOs and was making no headway at all. That is, until September 10th, 1951. It is here that a blip appears on a new radar machine being used at Fort Monmouth Radar School in New Jersey. The blip appeared while a radar operator was giving a demonstration on the new automatic tracking. Just as the radar tech was going to switch to this fancy new technology, the blip appeared, about 12,000 yards southeast of the station, flying low and north along the coastline. The tech estimated that this object was moving around 700 miles per hour, which was faster than any known aircraft at the time. On instinct, the radar tech switched immediately over to the new automatic tracking, but the object was too fast and was not able to keep track of it. The blip was visible for a full three minutes before it disappeared near the Sandy Hook Peninsula, still heading north. Embarrassed, the radar tech and the high-ranking officers all began to make their way back to their respective locations so that they could file some troubling reports. Before they could so much as put pen to paper, First Lieutenant William S. Rogers took off from the Dover Air Force Base in Delaware, heading to New York with Major Edward Ballard Jr. as a passenger. Just south of Sandy Hook, at 11.35, the two men both observed a silver disc below them about 20,000 feet above Point Pleasant, New Jersey, not West Virginia. I was about to lose my shit. (laughs) And then the book said West Virginia, and I went, okay. Never mind. The world is boring again. Yep. No, I, I was. I felt the exact same way. Rogers says that the disc was moving opposite them in a parallel course about 12,000 feet below them. Rogers, an experienced pilot from World War II, dove the plane in pursuit of the craft as it went lower toward the Sandy Hook Peninsula. As he got on its tail, the disc came to a perfect stop, turned 120 degrees, and shot out to sea, vanishing. 
In the two minutes that this all happened, it covered 35 miles and was going over 1,100 miles per hour. <laughs> this is fine. <laughs> Back at Fort Manmouth, they got a frantic call to track the object. Giving I, it, I'm convinced it's not pronounced Manmouth, but I don't know what it's pronounced. I'm going to let you go. I don't. I, uh, correct me then. I, I don't know what it is. It's just it can't be Manmouth. I know. <laughs> Manmouth. 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 What are we doing? We're, we're saying mammoth in a Jamaican accent. Back at Fort Manmouth. Back at Fort Man, Manmouth, or whatever the fuck it's called, they got a frantic call to track the object, giving its last known location. Eventually, they were able to find it. 93,000 feet above the earth, or 18 miles. Ground observers even said they saw it, but simply as a silver speck. The next day, Ruppelt, after having read the reports coming out of the bases, said, On this date and time, a teletype machine at Wright-Peterson Air Force Base began to chatter out a message. 36 inches of paper rolled out of the machine before the operator ripped off the copy, stamped it operational immediate, and gave it to a special messenger to deliver to ATIC. Lieutenant Cummings got the message. The report was from the Army Signal Corps Radar Center at Monmouth. New Jersey. Manmouth. Manmouth, New Jersey. <laughs> and it was red hot. What he said after that, implying that ATIC immediately took action, turns out it's not completely accurate. Pack of lies. Yeah. According to Bennett, the incidents were reported on the 11th and 12th of September, and the report wasn't actually seen by anybody of importance in ATIC around the 20th, and Ruppelt not actually making the statement until the 29th. Bureaucracy moves slow. The military, when they don't give a shit about the topic, moves slower. Two members of ATIC did finally go out to talk to the military personnel around the 28th of September. Yeah, it's just a just a casual... What, 25 days later? Uh, 18. 18 days. Okay. Yeah. I can't do math. That's okay. I lost it in the war. You're a writer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good thing, too. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. The infamous Bear Sasquatch War. Yeah. Yeah. As can be expected at this point, the entirety of the logs did not reflect the story they were claiming happened. Was this intentional? A mishandling? Or something else? The result of whatever it was is clear that UFO business is an absolute chaos and that at all levels of the government, there's continued denial. Other events happened over the year, like a sighting of a craft that was going over 150 miles per hour, the official response being freak weather, of course. But I want to fast forward to March of 1952, when Project Blue Book was formed. After wading through the thankless waters that was the United States Air Force, Ruppelt and company finally were able to get a better project for dealing with the UFOs, that being Project Blue Book. Bennett then spends a large portion of the book going over a lot of the behind-the-scenes events for Ruppelt that led up to Project Blue Book forming, including other sightings, meetings with foreign and civilian UFO investigation groups. Most of this to show, as he says, our hero is becoming more well-rounded and more in tune within this world. 
When a hard-hitting article finally drops in Life magazine, Ruppelt brushes it off, implying that the United States Air Force may have been the inspiration for the article, but any conclusions are the magazine's. So let's fast forward. Over time, Project Blue Book went from being a small project within a group of the government to its own section of the United States Air Force. In this time, they received tons of reports from all, from all around to investigate. Unfortunately, a lot of them were rejected by Blue Book. If it didn't come from someone that the project classified as an educated, intelligent professional that is capable of judging what is real or not, they threw it out. On July 19, 1952, at 11.40 p.m., one of the many recent sightings around Washington National Airport was picked up by two radars. Seven unidentified flying objects were picked up south of Andrews Air Force Base, traveling about 100 to 130 miles per hour, which is much too slow for a standard jet plane. Before they, they being the radar techs, could make any sense of what they were seeing, it streaked off going over 7,000 miles per hour. This is fine. They ruled out their tech. Nothing was wrong with it that they could tell. The officer in charge went to scramble some fighters because UFOs over the capital city, as it turns out, is a pretty fucking big deal. Yeah, I should think so. Unfortunately, the runways at Andrews Air Force Base were down, and the only other available base was in Delaware. Over a hundred miles away. Okay. July 20th, 1952, at 2 a.m. At Andrews Air Force Base, Staff Sergeant Charles Davenport reports an orange-red light. At 2.30 a.m. in Boiling Air Force Base, Staff Sergeant Don Wilson sees a red-amber light, which he judged to be going around a thousand miles per hour. At the same time, so 2.30 a.m., back at Andrews uh, Air Force Base, the radar picked up a UFO, and those outside the windowless control room reported seeing a huge fiery orange sphere hovering directly over the radio range station. This object was picked up by radar at Andrews, Boiling Air Force Base, and Washington National Airport. The staff sergeant speculates that maybe the objects were listening to their transmissions. This is because at 3 a.m., all the objects were gone. Ironically, just as the single F-94 arrived to investigate. Now, these are just some of the sightings that happened around this time. There were many, many more sightings, and all by the United States Air Force. All unexplained, and all ultimately amounted to nothing but failed excuses. There was a lull between some of these sightings, where naturally the government moved at the speed of snail and accomplished nothing. At 10.30 p.m. on July 26th, the same radar technicians who captured the first UFO sightings over Washington saw the same objects again, moving slowly across their 24-inch screens. This time, the objects were spread out maybe in a formation. But by 11.30, there were five objects being tracked and by three different radars. Like before, there was a long delay in launching some planes. And by the time the F-94Cs arrived, the objects had once again disappeared. 
What Rupert didn't know at the time was that around the same time that they disappeared from their radar over Washington, there were reports of sightings over Langley Air Force Base. People were calling in to report bright lights that were rotating and giving off alternating colors. The radio tower operators, seeing the same exact things, called for F-94Cs to come in. One plane jetted in and, like before, the lights went out. This time, however, they had a lock on three objects. What was likely an incredibly tense moment for those watching, and even more so for the pilots, ultimately amounted to nothing. The Air Force didn't pull the trigger on doing literally anything about these unidentified objects. So this is yet another story of how the United States Air Force was reacting hard, but with no follow-through. Let's talk about this. This was a lot of information that we just went over, but I want to talk about the Air Force for a second. So what are your thoughts on their inability or so it seems to act? Could it be good timing and planning on those of the UFOs that they showed up at places that weren't prepared to put fighters in the sky? Or was this just an example of the United States Air Force being so new and their lack of structure? I I have to say it's the latter. And the reason is, is we were in the middle of the gear up towards the Cold War there. There shouldn't have been a place domestically. They could they couldn't scramble fighters too quickly. Right. And there there literally shouldn't have been because there the, the bases existed like. Can you imagine if instead of a UFO that was a Russian bomber? It took right. you over an hour to scam- scramble a response to the thing bombing the White House. He he even mentions that in the Royal Air Force, in the British Royal Air Force, this would have been like this would be unheard of. Of what do you mean? All of the runways at the Air Force Base closest to the capital city were closed. Yeah. What do you mean you didn't have a two-plane team on standby to protect the Capitol building? Well, and also my favorite detail from this whole case, uh, I, Rory did not have space to go into it, but I, I have to talk about Harry Barnes, the sure. civilian weather monitor. So the first weekend that came around, uh, he was up there in his little single-engine plane flying around, and he saw the U.S. UFOs flying around above the Capitol. The only reason that first night that single F-94 was scrambled was because he wouldn't stop calling Air Force bases yeah. saying, hey, guys, you got to get someone over here. And then when the second incident happened and that pilot had the lock on, they people were directing their questions towards him. They were asking the civilian weather monitor, should I open fire? Because all other communication beyond the local radio had been lost. Well, in the radio tower, the the people that were actually manning the radio towers in Langley were, weren't responding. They were literally going, uh-huh. Yeah, because they everyone was so locked up, but goddamn Mr. Barnes up in that plane, he, uh, <laughs> he knew a decision had to be made for his country. Harry Barnes is the real fucking hero like, of this incident at least. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, Harry Barnes is the reason anything happened regarding an Air Force response. And again, I think it comes back to we don't know what to do, so we're just going to do nothing. And I mean, thank God that mentality didn't end in like D.C. being blown off the map or something. Well, and at the time, that that seems like it seems like such a such an oversight by the government or by the military, because I mean, what if, I mean, thank God it didn't happen. But what if because of this, like, what if those uh, those transmissions got intercepted by by the Russians? Right. And they're like, oh, well, the entirety of Andrews Air Force Base is effectively fucking useless. 
So they just took that opportunity to come in. Yeah, it, it absolutely could have happened. Well, and I think that the, that that fact explains a lot of the Air Force's not only their reaction in the days following these events, which I'm sure we're going to get to, but also uh, their general attitude towards UFOs in the decades following. It's this topic is the source of what should have been the one of the biggest uh, embarrassments ever suffered by a branch of the military, especially domestically. And less than 10 years into their tenure of existence. Yeah. And suddenly they left. They they left a giant window where people could wipe where an enemy could wipe out our entire government pretty much. Yeah. Our entire federal government. Uh, It's I, I feel like more and more. What we've seen regarding the military's response to UFOs, I'm beginning to suspect partially because of this book, but also there are other uh, sources that have said similar things where it's less about, oh, we 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 don't want anyone to know there are aliens that will cause unrest. It's, oh, we can't let people know how much we've fucked this up. Yeah. Well, and I think I actually think that's a really uh, I think that plays a big part mm-hmm. in why they continuously would give bullshit excuses. Um and we're we are going to talk about like some of their their uh their excuses uh, a little bit in just a little bit but i think that this in these incidents in particular um because they're over the capital fucking city and i mean i i don't want to i don't want to say that they were they were that the objects were threatening because they weren't doing anything that was threatening but fuck man like they should have done something. They should have immediately like if a crop plane goes into uh government airspace, they immediately have two fighter planes on it within seconds. Yeah. But we have UFOs from who knows where doing who knows what going slow. Yeah. Almost like they're saying, come on, we're here. Come get us. Right. And we and it took us over an hour on two separate uh, two separate occasions to get a plane out there. Well, and also, I mean, it's also been was implied later. There was a chance. There's a solid possibility that those in charge, the brass, weren't really even notified the events were happening till it was over. Yeah. So there was there was no attempt to get someone in the chain of command to actually issue orders down and make that decision, which is why a civilian weather monitor had to. And that still boggles my freaking mind. It took it like after the the course of the events that happened, it took weeks for Ruppelt to get out there. Yeah. Well, and he actually remember he went out after the first sightings and they said, well, you and he wanted to go around and ask about ask locals about the situation. And he was in Washington, D.C. for something else. It was part of his bi-monthly report he had mm-hmm. to give to uh, to Air Force Brass. And while he was out there, the incident had just happened. He read about it in the paper after he right after he got off the plane. That's how he learned of it. Mm-hmm. And so he said, well, I'm here. Why don't I go ask around, find some witnesses and find out some information? And they said, well, I'm sorry, finance, you're not cleared for that expense. They wouldn't give him a car. They wouldn't let him do anything outside of his expressed orders of come give your report and return. And they even told him, if you stick around and do investigating, you're going to be considered AWOL because you're refusing your order to return to Project Blue Book offices. And even though this what? is absolutely within the right of Project Blue Book. Right. What is happening? Uh, bu- bureaucratic, bureaucracy. Yeah, bureaucracy. This, that's yeah. what this is. 
it's it's bureaucratic ineptitude. It is the inability to see past regulations to the reality of the situation. And I get it. And I get the idea of bureaucracy to a certain extent. Okay. Like I, I work in a very, I work in a very corporate, uh, very corporate job right now. Mm-hmm. And I literally, for what I do specifically, I develop and I develop uh, training content. Mm-hmm. So I have to go through all the, all the hoops, right? Mm-hmm. I have to, I have, I, before I can do anything as so much as post a simple update to the, for, you know, a job aid that we use every single day, I have to go through six meetings, you know, and it's essentially the same kind of process. But here's the thing. If I, that my people, my, the higher ups above me trust me to be able to make a decision on my own. Yeah, that's not the case here. No, they don't trust. They don't seem to trust Rupelt. Rupelt. They don't seem to trust him with handling this the way that the Air Force wants it to be handled. Which, all right, so uh, Bennett attributed that to the growing divide between the, uh, I guess, the everyday man and the corporate elite that was creating. And that he he very much presented it where Air Force brass were these uh, kind of corporate thinking high up, far removed from the from the action, from what's actually going on. Uh, Whereas Ruppelt was kind of the representation of this blue collar enlisted who managed to rise to the rank of captain as Justin enlisted and but that's not even really all that true because he was a fucking pilot. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was enlisted. He wasn't a, he wasn't an officer. No, he wasn't at first. Yeah. He did become effectively an officer. I, it, I think there's still a difference between if yeah, you went through if officer you, training versus if you were yeah, enlisted. Yeah, he didn't go to like West Point. Yeah. Yes. There, yeah. there is a difference yeah. between going to a military academy and entering as an officer versus going through basic training. Yeah, and but, there is a distinct hostility between those two groups oh uh, yeah and i I can see i can see that it's just i guess like he was a successful world war ii pilot that was part of the bombing group like part of one of the most highly trained pop bombing groups at the time right but i think mind you that highly trained was only six months but i mean if bennett if bennett's correct then it's likely that they gave him Blue Book largely because, A, he wouldn't stop making noise about it. And B, because there is the assumption he would fail because I think there, I mean, and this... So he was a patsy. Well, it's not just that. It's he was... he was a weapon in the eyes of yeah. the people like, yes, yeah. he's a pilot. Yes, he's done all these great things. But that doesn't mean that he has critical thinking faculties. I mean, and we, do, and we do know to an extent that that was the goal because they wanted Heineck to write off everything. Yeah, no, the goal was to make Blue Book uh, seem as legitimate from the outside while hobbling it on the inside, which in a way it did. Oh, it totally it was worked. Very successful. Yeah, it, it, it was. It, it set the tone for ufology for the next what 50, 60 years, and there are still people out there who, because of the actions taken, then they've had their lives ruined because they told the truth about what they saw, and uh, it's just, it's just gross. Yep. Sorry, Jay. We didn't. I didn't mean for us to ramble on. Uh, for as long as we did there. Um, so I've I've got some got some thoughts about the original question, which was, is this just the Air Force fucking up as per usual, or was this, you know, uh the machinations of a greater intelligence? And 
I've talked before on this podcast about my theory that 10% of all incidents with the phenomenon is asshole teenagers from other planets and dimensions coming and fucking with the war apes. I, I think that explains at least some of the stuff that is described in this book. Sure. I think that there might have been teenaged aliens who thought it was really, really funny to go play chicken with the flying monkeys. Yeah. And I think there might have been a distinct possibility of like, wait, their little plane silo is broken. Like their little plane silo next to where the palace is, is like all broken. Oh, shit. (laughs) I think they just went and started buzzing around in circles down there going like, look at this city. It's so big. (laughs) Like, I I don't I I honestly, I think you might have a bit of a point. I think it was kind of a combination of both things. Yeah, because I think maybe they chose the area because they knew that there was no there wasn't really an ability for them to react so quickly so they would have time to be able to do their little disappearing act yeah and- you, you know I'm, I'm just gonna put this out there uh if you go on the very far you know woo side there's a lot of you know especially when you get to the ufo psychic connection what if it's not that they knew that there would not be, we would not be able to respond then. What if it's they made sure we wouldn't be able to respond then because they did things like, hey, I'm going to make sure that guy makes a decision to close all the runways by messing with his dreams or something. Uh, I mean, if you want to go full woo about it. Wait, I mean, I yeah. usually do because it's usually more interesting. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I, I guess you could, you could make that argument. But I, I mean, again, there's no evidence. That's just some asshole in the Midwest talking about it in the basement. We, we don't have a lot of evidence for our wild speculation, but that that's a very fun part of this of this research is well, I we don't can have, just. Yeah, we don't have much evidence, period. It's like Tenny says, until we know the answer, all the doors must remain open. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so so honestly, like with the with them flying over the like the White House, like over the capital city, I do legitimately almost get a vibe of like a pack of like 19, 20 year olds or that equivalent of it's just like so dad says normally we're not supposed to go to that big city because they actually care about that one. But their stupid little plane silo is broken. So I don't see what the problem is. I. I like it. To be honest, I think that there's I think you I think you might be on to something there because I I I come back to this and we've talked about this uh like we talked about this with in Passport to Magonia. Uh I I think we talked about it a little bit in Mothman. We've t- we've talked about it this a lot. And the idea that the phenomenon, the UFOs, the aliens, however you want to call it, but in this scenario here, um, that their intelligence is likely different than ours, right? Yeah. So thinking about it from a perspective that is too similar to ours is not, I mean, statistically, it's probably not likely that they're thinking the same way that we are. Yeah. So it makes sense in a way that they would, I don't play games, take advantage, do whatever it is, because it doesn't make sense to us. Yeah. And like, they, that other incident uh, where the uh, where the woman was looking out her window while her children were asleep and mm-hmm. she saw the saucer that was making all the different colored smoke and stuff. I actually really liked that chapter, but I just couldn't find a place to fit it in the summary. Yeah, yeah I remember that. I liked it as well. Yeah, it's um, it, it, honestly, if if you can like s- borrow a copy of this book from a library or something that that. That story is definitely worth a read. It's um, it's cheap and short. Yeah, buy, say, it. buy it. It's a cheap book. Buy it, and you could finish it in a day or two. Yeah, 
Yeah, easy. Um, but what I was actually getting at is like that that almost felt like with them hovering outside her window and hitting the different levers to, as far as we could tell, just make the different colored smoke with patterns. That felt to me like when I'm making faces at a baby that mm. I see in a grocery store and the baby's just staring at me like, yeah. why are you doing that with your mouth? <laughs> yeah. Or like, you know, when when we do weird things in front of the dogs just because they start freaking out because they're like, why are you doing that? You know what a lot of these, the, like especially the colorful sightings made me think of was those videos, that you, videos and photos you just showed me, Nick, yeah, the, the other day. The ones I, yeah, the ones I, I found on Reddit. <laughs> yeah. Because it was the same thing. It was like the sphere with the different colored lights around, uh, around the edge of it. Mm-hmm. So that was the first thing that I thought of when I saw the, when uh, they were describing it in the book. And I was like, and because those are more recent, right? Uh, the last that last video I showed you supposedly is from 2016 somewhere in Kentucky. Although that said, that that's as well sourced as any other UFO video right. you're going to see outside of the you know gimbal films or something like that. Right. I don't know. I, I mean, it's the same kind of description, and it's happening now. Makes me a little think that there might be some relation there. I mean, probably. All right. You want to get into the last section? Yeah, I, I guess we have to. It's a short one, if that <gasps> helps. And then we'll get into our final question. Woo! So how do we think, after knowing all this information, so how do we think the United States Air Force responded to these sightings? Did they finally give in and say that they didn't know what these might be? No, of course not. We all know better than that. What they did say, however, is that the Washington sightings were due to temperature inversions. What the fuck does that even mean? I said that at the beginning of the show. It's a hot pocket of air trapped between two cold pockets of air. It's bullshit. I mean, yes, that. Okay, <laughs> let me make this clear. It is not a good explanation for what UFOs are. Temperature inversions are a thing. They do exist. Yeah, and, no, I know. And we've we've we can pick them up on radar. And my understanding is um, we've always pretty much known how to, you know, identify them and also there's a big issue that as far as i can tell they don't move uh they don't fly around or or vanish when f-94s draw near and they certainly don't go seven thousand miles per hour they certainly don't put themselves on a collision path with a fighter jet that was out on its normal patrol <laughs> and i can't imagine that they um have the multicolored light nor do they look like a wingless fuselage yeah. So now that we've cleared that up. So we get, we've cleared up temperature inversions, completely real. Probably not UFO. They're probably not UFOs, though. And just for the record, the what the fuck does that even mean is in my script. No, I'm going to make fun of you anyway. Ruppelt defended the failed press conference that relayed this information. In that defense, he said, General Sanford made an honest effort to straighten out the Washington national sightings. But the cards were stacked against him before he started. He had to hedge on many answers to questions from the press because he didn't know the answers. This hedging gave the impression that he was trying to cover up something more than the fact that his people had fouled up and not fully investigating the sightings. Which this, to me, Rory, feels like a cop-out. Maybe he tried. Maybe he didn't. 
but no ownership was taken at the failed response and a bullshit answer was used to try and make sense of these sightings. Ruppel does this a lot. While he himself takes the UFOs seriously, he seems to have no spine whatsoever when it comes to pushing back on the higher ups to not cover up UFO sightings with bullshit answers. And with that, we'll go into our final discussion question. Okay. Why the bullshit? What's with all the shitty responses? Is this just the military industrial complex as Bennett posits? Or is this the weird evolution of, I don't know, like toxic masculinity in our society? Um, personally, I think it is the behavior of people who are expected to give an answer but can't. And what I mean by that is it's that they are kids who got called to the front of the classroom and asked a question about a a chapter of the book they did not read. And I think that was very clear with Sanford because Sanford very clearly, this was not a topic he had read a lot about. This was not a topic he even really looked into. And he was trying to speak authoritatively as an expert. And they brought in and his only real support was the general who was who is I mean, he's the one who covered up Roswell. Yeah. Uh, and the ATIC radar oper- uh, radar expert who has uh, was one of the group of people that initially were disregarding any and all UFO reports that came in under Project Grudge. He's the one who came up with the temperature inversion lie. So why not then, uh, instead of doing the press conferences yourself, hand it off to Ruppo because he was in charge of Project Blue Book, who is responsible for researching all of this? I could see it two ways. One, I could see two reasons. One, um, you don't want to give the perception to the American people that you're not taking this seriously and having they might have thought that having this enlisted captain talking would make it look like this was a low priority or not an issue for them. The other thing that I think uh, might might have played a factor there is a uh, worry that he's going to say something that will imply a greater responsibility on their half. What I mean by that is he could say, this is something we should be looking into. And then the press goes, yeah, we really should be looking into this. And now suddenly the air force has to continue to deal with this topic that they've already deemed to be embarrassing. So instead they just fumbled their way through the press conference, Yeah, which honestly does a lot more to take the wind out of the sails than had they given straight answers. So, I mean, it's if you fumble through it and you make it confusing and contradictory, a lot of people just kind of get bored and wander off. They, they, they move on. Because, well, and you're right, but I think it's more of they see it and they go, wow, we're not going to get an answer. Well, and their official answer at the end was it does not pose a threat. to. I mean, when Blue Book got closed, they said UFOs don't pose a threat to national security, so they're not worth looking into. And it's like, okay, so your your answer is we don't know what it is, but it doesn't seem to be hurting anyone. So let it go. And yet all the and well, I don't want to say all, but and yet many abduction stories. Yeah, yeah, many abduction stories. There is some harm, but even the ones that aren't, there's trauma that's related to that. Yeah, well, and. It's again, though, you come back to abductions aren't real. If I ignore the pieces of the phenomenon that I in my job would be forced to deal with and that it gives me the ability to ignore all of the phenomenon because, hey, it is not a threat. Right. And I'm the military. I only deal with threats. Right. 
I mean, I it just it did felt felt like a giant shrug. It was passing the buck on, but there was no one else to pick up the buck except for civilian researchers, which is how we got into the situation we are in today, uh, specifically regarding ufology, where you have this vast world of competing voices all trying to shout louder than the other ones about their particular theory, often for financial or egotistical purposes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I think looking at this through the because there's probably not one singular explanation as to why this was the response. Uh, I think looking at it through the through the lens of gender studies and examining it from examining it from the perspective of toxic masculinity or just just pervasive masculinity per, provide some interesting context just because one of one of the like uh, hard and fast rules about investigating any parapsychology or phenomenon based thing is that i'm i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to use just some, just going to use the most basic terms that i have to is that women tend to be much more willing to believe in this shit than men are and that is because largely our society wants people that they perceive as men to grow up very being very cool, very logical, very A to B, therefore C kind of a kind of uh that's how they think that men should relate to the world. And ooey gooey woo stuff, that's for chicks. And like And Bible preachers. Yes. Uh non- Protestant Bible preachers. Right. Uh yeah. And and that's that that's something you see all the time in my in my haunted house shows that I watch mm-hmm. is that uh 90% of the time it's the chicks in the house who are seeing it and the guy is just like, well, I haven't seen anything. Meanwhile, the furniture is levitating behind him and spinning around. You, you know, th- just kind of building off that, because I'm I uh I am a man. Yes, you uh, are. And building out, thinking about it, there is definitely because I've, I've in analyzing my own psyche, I've seen this uh, men, especially in Western society, are definitely brought up with this mentality of it is your job to fix things. It's yes. your job to, you know, be the handyman to fix the scenario when the emotional women are losing their minds. And I maybe that's part of the, where this comes from is these are men who are used to, I mean, again, very capable military men who are supposed to be the most highly trained, highly educated, the best of the best of the best. And they are now presented with a problem. They, it's not even just that they can't fix it. It is so far beyond them. They don't even know how to begin approaching it. And I think, and that causes them to just shut it down because psychologically you can't, they can't handle the fact that they can't handle having to come forward and say, we can't do anything about it. And I, I think that's a completely valid perspective. And that is, uh, as I am, you know, furthering my my transition and even before I came out when I understood that, like, yes, I'm assigned female at birth, but I am not a girl. Something is going on there. I I would encounter things like that where it's just like this is a problem. I can't fix it. And therefore, as a defense mechanism, my brain would go, well, then obviously it's not a problem then because problems have solutions. If it doesn't have a solution, it's not a problem. She's being hysterical. And it's 
I feel like that definitely was a factor at play here, especially because at this period in time, there was not a single woman in that office. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, no. Yeah. No, it, I mean, there might have been a couple of female reporters in that room, but even that probably not. Yeah, like not. Yeah. In 1952. Yeah, it must be a typist who's yeah. there with a reporter. Yeah, yeah, or like janitorial staff, something like that. They wouldn't have been they wouldn't have been consulted about no, what was no, going on. No. And that's yeah, and that's I that is just kind of a thing in our society is that concrete facts, mathematical things are for are the realms of men and everything else is the realm of women. And because of the way that our society wants to keep gender so strictly divided to the point where the relations between them are almost defined by antagonism, I I think that absolutely contributed to them dismissing this out of hand because it wasn't something that they understood and they had not been given space to develop the sort of creative imagination that would have allowed them to look beyond their prejudices. And I, I think one point that like to build on it is ultimately when project blue book and the, you know, and the, you know, the United States looking into ufology ultimately shut down because they quote, like Nick had said, they deemed it not a threat. They didn't see that just because it's not a threat doesn't mean it's not worth investigating, you know? And I think that was a big part of it because they, you know, it's the military. So therefore, if it's not attacking us, it's not our concern, but that's never been the whole deal. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> let, let, let's uh let's look at some banana republics that we went and messed up when they hadn't done anything to us. We were in the forever war for for that exact reason under the guise of responding to 9-11, but that's never why we were there. Yeah. No. Um we were there to try and experiment in nation building. And oil. Well yeah I mean look at who was in charge. That was some that was just some nice loot that we got on the side. I'm I'm kidding. It was the express reason we went there. Correct. Um, there, there's also there's also the idea of you kept saying of just like they deemed it not a threat. And earlier you also mentioned that it's like people are frequently traumatized by mm-hmm. these encounters, and that's almost again looking at it through looking at that specifically through the lens of toxic masculinity, particularly as it pertains to enlisted men who have seen war, it might not have occurred to them that being traumatized is a threat in and of itself of it's like they didn't cut you open. They I think they still don't think that way. That's entirely possible because probably all of them are like, bitch, I get traumatized for breakfast. I, like- I will say this. I think, though, that is, we I have seen in my lifetime some of that change just in that I see that veteran mental health and veteran suicides is a much more discussed topic. And yeah, I've that's, even, o- that's only vets yeah, and only, only vets. because they're in war zone. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is that that is what we've seen is the transition from there is no trauma to trauma is for soldiers. And that's uh, that's only because they're that's only because of civilian influence on on the PTSD front. No, you're not wrong. You're you're not wrong at all. The military itself did nothing to help that. And that. That partially just grows out of the culture of the military attempting to sustain itself, because if you acknowledge that being traumatized the way that soldiers are traumatized is an evil, awful, life ruining thing, you then begin to have to question the morals of going to war at all. And 
that that won't do. We can't afford to do that. I think another factor to this is just the fact that it's like I, you know, I will never not talk about religion. Um, we we were founded by Puritans who were partially driven out of England due to the fact that they were religious extremists. And just like gender was divided to the point where men and women were treated as separate nations with nothing in common, uh, that's part of where our very strict black and white thinking in this country came from comes from is the fact that our culture was defined by Puritans who thought the existence of shades of gray was the was worse than the works of the devil, Mm -hmm. because at least the works of the devil sat neatly in their category of evil. And I I think that we have we are still just working to break out of that out of that deeply pervasive way of thinking of like if we can't neatly categorize something we have to assume it doesn't exist and if you look back at some of the other books we've read it's very much what you're arguing there is very much in line with what gary lockman was arguing in secret teachers of the western world and that you know we have the western uh mindset has slowly become all about duality about one or the other and like uh, bennett was arguing here maybe what we're dealing with here with the phenomenon is a more liminal thing. It's a both and thing that is half real, half what you project onto it. It's part psychical, part physical. And once you enter into that kind of wishy-washy middle ground, it, it you can no longer say, should I shoot it or befriend it? So you ha- it, its motives are forever unknown. Its capabilities are forever unknown. And when faced with that kind of ambiguity, the dualistic mindset uh, fails. It cannot handle that reality. Yeah. And on that note, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the author. Yeah, all right. Uh, so as usual, I've worked up whatever facts I could find from online um, about Mr. Colin Bennett. Again, I couldn't find too much. Part of that was because a lot of his books are out of print. And also um, he lives in England where I am not. And uh, so going down the list here, uh, he was born in the real life Sherwood Forest, only a short walk away from the castle, which is Sheriff Nottingham's castle, uh, or at least the inspiration for it. Bonkers. Um, he's the author of several other books other than uh, this one, uh, though it's worth noting that I believe Goodreads may be leading me astray here is some of these titles sound like they might have been authored by men of the same name, but I can't find any proof of that. So it might all be him. Uh, the first one was 1971 Practical Time Travel, How to Reach Past Lives by Occult Means. Uh, this is one of the two that I, I suspect might have been written by someone else just because it came out a full uh what, 17 years before any of his other works. But that said, it could be him. Uh, It sounds like it'd probably be up his alley. 1988, he helped author a mathematics textbook, Interpolation of Operators, Volume 129. And if I mispronounce that, it's because I don't know what that means. Uh, (laughs) 2001, Looking for Orthon, which was his biography of George Adamski, uh, who was regarded as the first kind of contactee. Uh, 2002, he published Politics and the Imagination, a biography of Charles Fort. And that book was the winner of the 2002 Anomalist Award for Best Biography. Uh, Anomalist Awards were issued by Anomalist Magazine. That book actually looks pretty interesting. It It looks really interesting. Uh, 2007, he published The Entertainment Bomb, his first fiction. Uh, It's a speculative science fiction novel about an MI6 operator engaged in a PSYOP program to create a new global political system based entirely on celebrity worship. 
And then in 2010, he followed up with another fiction book, Rumford's Rogues, A Tales from Consumer Life, is a novel about a designer of lifelike robots who comes under the crosshairs of conspiratorial forces. And the last book that he has published, um, again, this is one that I think maybe he didn't write it because it's so different from everything else, but it might be him. Uh, Trading Volatility, Trading Volatility, Correlation, Term Structure, and Skew. Uh, It's about stock volatility. It's about the stock market. I mean, Uh, if he wrote that mathematics book, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Uh, Going back into his personal life, uh, he studied in England and he left school where he was studying science and mathematics to be uh, and left to become a musician. And then eventually he stopped doing that and became a mercenary soldier before winning a scholarship to study English at Balliol College at the University of Oxford. Uh, He wrote several plays which performed in London and he was heavily involved in the London theater scene for a while. Till later, he reinvented himself yet again as an electronics engineer, a move which he calls a cure for a bad dose of left liberal decadence. He then went on to run his own electronics consultancy and printing firm. Uh, he currently resides in London, where he's still reading and writing. And I did find a uh, reference that indicates that in recent years, he's suffered declining health due to a heart attack and diabetes and he's now confined to a wheelchair uh, and obviously we hope he is uh, feeling better yeah absolutely um but yeah that's that's what i managed to find about him not too much this time he's a, a bit of a man of mystery yeah maybe it's for the better i mean he's he's hiding from those evil pharmaceutical companies that are obviously the source of fascism because they fund those witch doctors psychiatrists i feel like you took that way more personally than you should have yes (laughs) so housekeeping 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 So if you guys did like what you hear, please like and subscribe on whatever channel it is that you're listening to. It really, really does help us. And if you are specifically listening on Apple, please leave us a five-star review. Five-star review. Five-star review. (laughs) Stars, five of them. (laughs) And if you want to engage with us, uh, we are on Twitter at Pod, And then I have my personal Twitter at MixRoryWix. I'm at BearishTerror. I'm at Midwest Undead. And, uh, well, we also have our email account. Oh, yeah. Noctivian podcast at gmail.com. Send us your likes, dislikes, book requests. Also, if you just have any thoughts about the books that we've been covering, uh, feel free to send them over to us. Maybe we'll read them on air. Yeah, that would be cool. Uh, we have an official Noctivian podcast Reddit account, which some of you out there have already interacted with us through, and that's been a lot of fun. Uh, we're on Tumblr at Noctivian podcast tumblr.com and we're on instagram now oh yeah uh, instagram noctivian underscore podcast i do that that's me yeah but i i think that's all the social medias that we're on right now i we're not going to make a facebook page that's not going to happen yeah I, i'm trying to get off facebook not yeah. get more on it yeah uh, and uh other than other than that like what are we going to do on tiktok post videos of me weeping yeah, that's about it. Uh, so next book, we in two weeks, we are coming back at you with a uh, book I'm pretty excited to read. We are going to be reading The Believer by Ralph Blumenthal. And oh, if, yeah. that, if that name sounds familiar, it's because he's the New York Times uh, reporter who broke the 2017 UAP story. Yep. So that's going to be a lot of fun. It is a, an engrossing documentary of John Mack, a Harvard trained psychiatrist who... Uh, threatened to throw his whole career away in order to defend UFO abductees. 
Yeah, I'm looking forward it's, to it's, it. It's cool. I've, I'm a bit into it so far. Uh, it's definitely written by a journalist. It is exhaustively sourced, very well cited. A lot of information we might not need, but it's well written, so it works. Hey, I'm looking forward to it. Any last words, Jay? Psychiatrists are normal doctors, not the witch variety. I don't get a last word. But you just talked a lot. Kumquat. Well, good night, ghosties. Good night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Stay safe out there. Don't get lost. Do it. Get lost. God damn it, Nick.